I want to turn this morning to Scripture for the next few moments and uh, focus on the next encounter with Jesus. We're in this series of messages dealing with people that had an encounter with Jesus. And this morning, um, this morning is kind of a, uh, a preliminary. This is, this is going to get touched on a number of times uh, over the next few weeks. But this morning, we're coming to a most important encounter, and it's important uh, specifically from a theological perspective. It's, um, yes, it has some important lessons for us uh, in a practical sense, but it introduces to us uh, some, some important um, theological concepts that that are worked out in detail throughout the New Testament. In fact, it was, a, it was an, an encounter that signaled a, a transition, a shift in God's dealings with humanity. That this was one of those early events in Jesus' ministry that, that people would have begun around him to say, there is really something different going on here. There's really something different going on here. What is, what is it that is taking place here? The encounter itself is straightforward, and it's easy to understand. But it's theological, and it's experiential, and practical ramifications. They're huge. They're extensive. They are ramifications that ended up being explained doctrinally by the Apostle Paul. And they were expounded upon... And, and very, very vividly illustrated for us by the writer of Hebrews in some, in some very picturesque terms. And, and these theological uh, concepts were some of the main battlefield issues that the early church struggled with. There was a, there was a powerful, um, difficult change of perspective and this, this encounter that, that we're going to read was, was part of the beginning, laid a foundation for all that was going to come next. So I'd like to read together with you uh, from Mark chapter 1. I want to start in verse 40. Mark chapter 1, I want to read verses 40 through 45. And a leper came to him, beseeching him, falling on his knees before him, and saying to him, if you are willing, you can make me clean. And moved with compassion, he stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I am willing, be cleansed. And immediately the leprosy left him and he was cleansed. And he sternly warned him, immediately sent him away. And he said to him, see that you say nothing to anyone, but go, show yourself to the priest and offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded for a testimony to them. But he went out and began to proclaim it freely and to spread the news about to such an extent that Jesus could no longer public, publicly enter a city, but stayed out in unpopulated areas, and they were coming to him from everywhere. So let's begin this morning with just a few uh, what I'll call contextual observations, a little background, a little background for the story. This story is included in all three synoptic gospels. 
the Synoptic Gospels, that's the fancy term for Matthew, Mark, and Luke, those three Gospels. John is the fourth Gospel and stands on its own in, in certain ways. But these three Gospels all record this story. It is interesting to see how much material the three synoptics cover together and then what John chooses to focus on during Jesus' ministry. It's a little bit different. Um, uh, so we have these three, uh, these three Gospels that all include this story. There is, however, a little bit more detail to this story that is included in the Gospel of Mark. Mark included a little bit more information about this story. The second thing we need to remember is that in Mark chapter 1, Jesus' first year of ministry is just kind of flashed right on by. The first year of ministry is basically covered in Mark chapter 1. So, uh, of course, not all details. Of course, there's a lot that, that Mark leaves out. But he kind of starts with a one chapter, well, this is Jesus' first year of ministry. And then he starts focusing on the rest of Jesus' ministry, Jesus ministry from there. So that means, in part, that what we find out from Matthew is that this event took place after the Sermon on the, Sermon on the Mount was preached. So Jesus' ministry begins early on. He teaches that famous sermon uh, in Matthew 5, 6, and 7, the Sermon on the Mount. The event that we're reading about here in Mark 1 with this leper, takes place after the Sermon on the Mount. So there's been, this is toward the end of Jesus' first year of ministry. There's been a significant amount of ministry and teaching that's already taken place. Miracles have been done. Healings have been done. Uh, there has been teaching that has been going on. Jesus' most extensive teaching has been accomplished in the form of the Sermon on the Mount. And, and this leper is now healed toward the end of Jesus' first year of ministry. The third thing that we need to notice from, uh, as far as background is concerned is that from Luke's gospel, the one detail that we glean from Luke's gospel that we don't see uh, elsewhere is that this man is described as having been full of leprosy. Full of leprosy. That is, the disease has spread to its extent. It's head to toe. It's everywhere. Anyone ever done any reading or research on leprosy? Couple of you? Um, you know, when you make your list of ways that you would rather not go, leprosy would probably have to be on that list somewhere. Um, there's there's nothing, nothing nice about this disease. There's nothing nice about this sickness. From Luke's gospel, we discover that this man had, had been thoroughly covered with leprosy. The leprosy had spread and had spread across the, the fullness of this man's body. Now, you know, for the sake of lunch later on, for the sake of sensibilities of children that are young, we'll just leave it alone. But, but once leprosy has gotten to that point, there's a lot of nasty things that have happened to a human body. Okay, so this man, this man was in a was in a bad way with this uh, with this leprosy. This is interesting. Leprosy is only mildly contagious. It's very mildly contagious. 
It's not something that gets passed by casual contact. This is one of those diseases that you, you probably have to live with someone if you're going to get it from them. Sharing a meal with someone who's a leper is, is not likely to do it. Um, uh, shaking their hand. What they'll tell you is you're not going to get it that way. It's long-term exposure. It's long-term contact with someone that, 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 will put, that might put you at risk. It is, it is not, it is not uh, a disease that is easily contagious or that is, that is um, uh, 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 violently contagious. So it becomes kind of interesting to think about how this disease is dealt with in Scripture. Under Jewish law, I think this is pretty well known, right? When a person was a leper, they were put out of the camp. They had to go live in a separate place where only other lepers frequented in a leper colony. And if they were going to be around any place where people that did not have leprosy were present, they had to announce that they were approaching by crying out at the top of their voice, unclean, unclean. Right? Here comes a person that's unclean. Now, uh, you, you stop and think about all that's involved in that. The amount of loneliness that is involved with not being able to be near the ones you love and having to leave your home territory, your hometown. You can't be present with those people anymore. You think about the loneliness that's associated with that. And then you think about what is reinforced in your own heart and mind every time you have to say, unclean. You're talking about yourself. I'm unclean. Well, you stop and think about what it meant to be unclean. It was something more than just, I'm sick, I'm diseased, I'm a danger to you. It was, it was in my state, I can't go to the temple. I'm unclean. There's something about me that's not right. Right? So, unclean things were things that were forbidden in the Old Testament. You can't touch them. You can't eat them. It's unclean. You yourself, wow, that's a, that's a rough label to put on a person. You see throughout Scripture, people that didn't want to do certain things around the festivals when they were going to share feasts because it would make them unclean for a time and they wouldn't be able to participate in the religious life of the community. Well, these people are permanently unclean. They live unclean. It's not a pleasant, it's not a pleasant designation to have hanging over your head all the time. I'm unclean. So the question is, if this, if this disease is so mildly contagious, why the extreme treatment of this sickness? Well, I mean, listen, on one hand, we can say, certainly, 
why was the laws art? Yes, of course, it was to protect people's health and safety, especially those that were going to live really up close and personal with these people. Not a grave danger to the community, but it still begs the question, why, why if they're just going to be walking past someone on the street, why if they're just going to be headed down the road, why do they have to announce unclean, unclean? What is going on here? Well, part of it was to protect people's health and safety, but there was this whole other aspect to, to what is going on with this sickness called leprosy. Leprosy was a sin, was a, was a sickness that was used as a type of sin, a type. What do I mean by a type? I mean something that is a picture for something else. It's a type or a symbol. It's an illustration of sorts. You say to yourself, well, why does God pick leprosy to be a, a symbol of sin? Why does he pick it to be a type of sin? Well, there's at least three reasons. The first reason is because it's humanly incurable. Now, don't pass over that one quickly. Sin is humanly incurable. Sin is humanly incur incurable. You see, people in this world may at times overcome sinful habits, but they can't cure their sin. There's nothing they can do to cure it. Sin is that which separates human beings from God, and there's nothing a human being can do to overcome that. Uh, I said this before, repeat it one more time. The concept of karma is not one that is acceptable to a Christian. We don't live in a system of you get what you deserve in the sense of if you do enough good, you've got more good than bad, then things will kind of be okay. It doesn't work that way. It doesn't work that way. Sin is humanly incurable. It's a fatal disease that is, that is not something that we human beings can do anything about. We can't cure it. And so, in that sense, leprosy becomes a very apt uh, picture of what sin is. It's humanly incurable. The second thing is that its spread was unstoppable. And, and this is a point to again pause on. Um, there was a group of us men after the men's breakfast yesterday there's five of us that sat around talking about the world in which we're living and particular sin that is just running rampant across the earth today. We laughed a couple times. We were serious a lot. At the end of that conversation, I walked over to another group and I was asked, what were you guys laughing about? Well, we were talking about, and I named the sin. Everybody went like this, what? You guys were doing a lot of laughing. Yeah, we did do some laughing. But it was a serious conversation we were having about sin. 
let's remind ourselves that sin is never content with its present level. Sin is, sin is not satisfied to contaminate you 50%. It's not content to contaminate you 60%. Sin always advances. Sin is always seeking more, demanding more, pushing the boundaries further. There are certain sins that this can be seen in very easily. But, but listen, we all, we all tend to teach certain lessons to our children. What's one of the things about lies that is particularly problematic with a lie? Well, if you tell a lie, what do you have to do? You've got to remember the lie you've told, and then you've got to keep explaining details that stay within the framework of your lie, the result is that lies tend to lead to more lies. That's the nature of sin. It is not content to stay within a certain boundary. Once entered into, it grows, it spreads, it keeps moving. And that's what sin does. And that's what leprosy does. Once it starts, it tends to spread. It keeps growing, and it keeps moving throughout a person's body. So what we have here is a spread that is unstoppable. It's a great illustration, a great picture of what sin is. The third thing is this. Leprosy was a living death until you die. What do I mean by that? I mean it had, it had deathly physical effects on a person. Again, don't want to be too graphic, but it will cost you body parts. Pieces of you that will die. Right? Not to mention the fact that it automatically kills your relationships. Kills your, your community, your, your, your ability to relate in a community and in a family. It is a, it is a living death that leads to ultimate death. And that's what sin is. Dying, you will surely die, God said to Adam. In the day you eat of that tree, dying, you will surely die. There will be an immediate death, a spiritual death, a, a, a division of relationship between God and man, and it will eventually work its way out to physical death as well. And so in that, leprosy is a, is a phenomenal illustration of, of what sin is, of the nature of sin. And so this, this sin, it's not like God said, I'm going to choose lepers and just pick on them and make them a type of sin. It was, this thing is, is by virtue of what it is, essentially a picture of sin. And so throughout Scripture, this, this idea of leprosy becomes a symbol for sin. This disease becomes a symbol for sin. And as a result, the law deals with it very extremely because sin is a serious problem. So what do we take from this passage? With this background, what do we take from this passage? Well, notice three things with me. The first thing to notice this morning is the deity of Christ. The deity of Christ. Um, Let me just say it this way. If some of these things 
are not things that you run into as issues in your personal life often, just have mercy on, on people sitting around you because others do, okay? It's, it's, it's fascinating to me to see how often these things come up. The deity of Christ. So we see the deity of Christ in this story in at least three ways. The first one is that the leper worships Jesus. That's the language that's used. The book of Mark and the version that I read, it says that he fell on his knees before him. He fell on his knees before him. In Matthew 8, 2, the, the phrase is translated, he worshipped him. He worshipped him. It's the idea. He fell on his knees before him. He worshipped him. Now that's a significant fact. In Acts chapter 10, verse 26, Peter refused to be worshipped. Cornelius bows before him. Peter walks into his house. Cornelius has been praying to God. Peter walks in. Cornelius goes down. Peter says, you got to get up. You can't worship me. You can't bow before me. Stand up. Why? Because uh, Peter gives us a specific reason. Because I'm a man. Because I'm a man. I'm just another human being. You don't worship me. I'm just human. The, the point is clear. Only God deserves worship. Interestingly, the leper falls before Jesus, and Jesus does not tell him to get up. There's no, there's no statement of, don't worship me. There's no such thing. Jesus accepts what this man does. He receives it. It's a, it's a clear indication of of. Jesus, knowing himself as divine, receiving worship from a man. Not only do other human beings receive, uh, refuse to receive worship, but in Revelation 22, verse 9, there's an angel that refuses to receive worship. John sees an angel. An angel is an impressive character. John falls down. The angel says, don't worship me. I am one of your brethren, of the servants of of." of God. Stand up. Get on your feet. You can't worship an angel, right? And so angels refuse to worship. By the way, there is one being who will illegitimately accept worship. Right? Didn't Satan tempt Jesus with that? If you will just fall before me and worship, I'll give you all these kingdoms. Still, trying to usurp God's position, I will be like the Most High God. The same spirit that animated him at the beginning still animates him now. Right? He will accept worship. And my brothers and sisters, this is, this is part of, of maybe what we could think about as one of those things that might help to keep us from, 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 from sin. Do you realize that there is a certain sense in which... In which Giving yourself over to sin is doing the will of the tempter. It is a sort of worship that is being offered. It is received as, well, they're pledging allegiance to me, not to him. This issue of sin is actually a pretty serious issue. Angels refuse to worship. But here in this story... Understanding that only God properly receives worship, 
it's significant that Jesus accepts this man falling before him, kneeling before him, prostrating himself before him. He accepts this man's worship. The second way we see it, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll focus on two that proclaim the deity of Christ. The second way this uh, man expresses worship, uh, 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 identifies the, the deity of Christ, is with this statement, you can make me clean. You can make me clean. Right? He doesn't say, you will pray to the Father for me. He says, if you will, you can make me clean. You're enough for it. Your will is enough for it. All you have to do is to want to do it, and you can do it. Right? And so he, he acknowledges that, that Jesus is of sufficient standing and sufficient power to be able to heal at will. You can make me clean. Now, maybe, the, maybe it's because the leper had just heard stories of other miracles that Jesus had done. He might not have consciously been thinking, you're the, you're the Christ, you are, you are the Son of God. He might have just been thinking, well, he's got a track record that leads me to believe that he could do it. But the point still is that when this man says, you can do it, Jesus does not look at him as the disciples did at times in the book of Acts and said, we can't do this, but we do know a name that can. Jesus simply says, you're right, I can do it. I can do it. He denies nothing that this man is saying. It is, a, it is an acknowledgement of Jesus' deity, that the supernatural was resident within him and, and was under his power at the discretion of his own will. It's a statement of Jesus' deity. Jesus was God in the flesh. The one we sang about this morning Jesus is Lord, the second person of the Trinity, in bodily form, seated at the right hand of the Father, making intercession for us, the God-man. He's still there. It's still who He is. And He is co-equal with the Father. He's divine. He's God. The deity of Christ. The second thing that we see in this passage is this issue of divine healing. And I just want to run through this really quickly. Um, this is not going to be a full theology of healing, but just a couple of quick points. Out of curiosity, um, I, I mean, I think I know the answer to this. How many of you believe in a God who still does miracles today? Still able, still does, st still involved, still active, hasn't checked out yet, right? A God who's still able to do miracles today. Let me just say this really quickly as a general framework about the, 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 this issue of divine healing. Here's a few things that are revealed to us in Scripture. One of the things we're told is that there are things that we could have that we do not get because we do not ask. Now, that's not the end of the scripture. It goes on to say, sometimes you ask and you still don't get it because you ask for the wrong reasons, right? But please hear this. See, 
this, it's, it's, it's so remarkable that God dignifies human beings the way he does. He could simply say, I don't care what any of you do. I'll do my will regardless. But what he says instead is, there are things that are within my purview, within God's purview, that for, some, for, for whatever reason he has deemed fitting in his wisdom, he says, I'm going to make you involved in it. I'm going to give you a place in it. So let me say it this way. Listen to this. If, if James writes, you have not because you ask not, what he's saying in those few words is something like this. There are at times things that God would be willing to do that he does not do because people don't pray. Because people don't ask. Listen, how many of you have, have recognized that not everything you have asked for you have gotten the way you hoped you would get it? Please hear this. That does not change the fact that there are things you would get exactly the way you asked for it if you did pray. It's a, it's, there's a lot to unpack here, but the fact of the matter in its most basic form is this. Part of the issue of divine healing is ask Him every once in a while. <laughs> ask. Ask. Because there are things we don't get for the simple reason that we don't ask. We don't ask. The second thing is this one. I find this one particularly interesting. James also instructs us, is any man sick? Here's what he says. Is any man sick? Let him pray. Let him pray. And let him call for the elders. And let them anoint the man with oil and pray the prayer of faith. And the Lord will raise up the sick, and if he has committed any sin, it will be forgiven him. In other words, there's something beyond. Listen, the fact that you need to pray is the priesthood of the believer. But the fact that you call for the elders says something about the importance of the Christian community. That yes, I can pray. And yes, I have direct access to God. And yes, He listens to me. And yes, I'm part of the church. And no, I'm not sufficient all by myself. And yes, I need brothers and sisters around me. Right? And so the instruction is, call for the elders and let them pray. Let them pray. That this is something that... that that we're instructed about in Scripture. Let him pray. The third one is that there are times when healing can be a spiritual gift. Now, I have, I have almost laughed to myself over the years talking about this issue. Because there are certain segments of Christianity that just don't even see this as having anything to do with life for today. God doesn't heal. He doesn't give those gifts to men anymore. Then there's another section that turns people into healers. And man, when the healer comes to town, 
that's the guy to have lay hands on you. Right? And so we've got an extreme on one hand that denies any reality, and we've got a stream on the other hand that turns ordinary human beings into something that God's not sharing with them. He doesn't want you looking at another human being the way you look to him. The fact of the matter is, these are gifts of the Spirit. And in, in 1 Corinthians 12 and 14, they are specific endowments of power at specific moments. And listen, if you want me to concede this point, I will be glad to do so. Some people, because of the way they walk with God, I'm not saying they earn it, I'm saying their experience has brought them to a place where they have great confidence in God, He's used them in certain ways, they, they say, I'm used this way more often than I'm used other ways. I'm okay with that. I'm okay with that. But let me tell you something. It is entirely possible for the need of the moment to be met with a gift in which the Holy Spirit comes upon a person and says, lay your hands on them. Lay your hands on them. And pray the prayer of faith over them. And as a gift of my spirit, they will be healed. Don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. There are gifts of healing. No, they're not residential. I, I, have, I, have, I shouldn't do it. I don't want to be sacrilegious. But listen, if someone really had a gift of the Holy Spirit, the way it's described, the gift of healing, the way it's described by some, the most mean-spirited thing would be to have that gift and not go empty out a hospital. Just go and deliver them all. There's other things involved, but don't throw out the baby with the bathwater. God might even use you to pray over someone and see them healed. God does the miraculous. And listen, for some reason, he delights to use puny creatures like us. He gives gifts of his spirit that he uses. It's also related to our faith. If you believe, all things are possible. Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. Right? There's a matter of faith involved in this. And then, lastly, there is, there is the fact that this matter of divine healing is an evidence of the truth of the gospel, and it was consistently used during Jesus' ministry as, as an evidence that he had the authority to forgive sins but that you might know that the Son of Man has authority to forgive sins, I say to you, palsied man, rise up and walk. And he demonstrates the authority to forgive sins by manifesting his power over things that other human beings can't do anything about. Right? For this reason, this is one reason why I would suggest that you would expect to see more miracles happening in certain places in the world than in others. Where the gospel's getting introduced, where the gospel needs to be demonstrated in authority and in power, expect God to, in his grace and mercy, be extra present when it comes to drawing people to himself. Expect it. 
Man, if you get called to the mission field, expect to see miracles there. You're going to a place where the gospel's never been presented before. You're going to a place where, where, where it's, it's not set. Expect, expect that God is going to be willing to validate your message with things that you're not capable of doing on your own. And evidence of the truth and the power of the gospel. Aspects of divine healing. One other thing about divine healing. Listen, divine healing is always subject to the will of God for our good. I have been in circles and been around people that have said, if you pray, if it's your will, you're lacking faith. And I just like to say, that is just not the case. It's just not the case. Let me point to two things real quickly before we get to the last, the last issue for this morning. Proverbs 30, verses 7 through 9. It's the only prayer in the book of Proverbs. The book of Proverbs is the book of what? Wisdom. You want to know what the only prayer is in Proverbs, the book of wisdom? You want to know what wise is? It is saying to God something like this. Don't give me so much that I forget you. And don't give me so little that I take your name in vain. You know what's the wisdom there? It's saying, you know what's best for me. You know, God, what's best for me. And my request is that you do what's best for me. Right? I leave the outcome in your hands. You know what's best for me. It is a, it is a wise prayer of absolute submission to the wisdom of one who knows what I don't. It's the prayer of wisdom. And then secondly, by the way, as, as we know, it was absolutely the, the attitude of Jesus in the garden. In fact, it wasn't just the attitude of Jesus in the garden. It was the attitude of Jesus throughout his life. This is, this is one of the main emphases of the book of John. I came not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Or Jesus said, I can of mine own self do nothing. I can do what I see the Father do. It was complete submission to the will of the Father. And so he just carries that out of the garden when he's facing the cross. And he says, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Oh, Jesus, what a lack of faith. If it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Not my will, thine be done. That was a lack of faith. It was perfect submission to the will of the Father. This issue of divine healing is one in which we must consider the, the will of God and the wisdom of God as, as it pertains to what is good for us. To what is good for us. All right. Divine healing. The last thing is this. We sang about it. Let's close with just a, cre a quick uh, glance at the Lordship of Christ. The Lordship of Christ. We've already seen this in a sense in, in Jesus' acceptance of the leper's worship and of the authority that he had to heal. These are indeed examples of the Lordship of Christ, his authority. But there's one important part of this story that becomes transformative to everything that happens in the rest of the New Testament. 
According to Leviticus chapter 5, verses 1 through 3, to touch an unclean thing made the person who touched unclean themselves. If you touch an unclean thing, it makes you unclean. For this reason, the Jewish people under the law were very careful not to touch anything unclean. It affected their ability to worship. It affected what they could or could not do in terms of worship before God. It made them ceremonially unclean, unfit to approach holy God. You don't touch unclean things. This had gotten worked out, not only in the specifics of what the law said, but then in, in, in application of things. Well, the law says this is unclean. We better not touch it. Well, what we're told in this story is that a man who comes to Jesus and is a leper is required by law to proclaim his uncleanness as a leper, is ceremonially unclean because he's a leper, has to stay outside the community of God's people because he's a leper, cannot worship freely because he's a leper, appears before Jesus, and we're told specifically that Jesus moved with compassion, stretches out his hand, and touches him. Now listen, at this point in the story, there's all kinds of tearjerker kind of things that you could say. I wonder how long it had been since this man had felt another human touch. I wonder how long it had been. Jesus reaches out his hand, and he touches this leper. In doing so, listen to this, in doing so, Jesus identifies himself as superior to the law, above it, above it, Lord over it. Please hear this. The point is not to say Jesus sinned indiscriminately against the law or that he was a lawbreaker, but that he was Lord over it. He was Lord over it. He knew what its intent was. And please hear this. The intent of the law of cleanness and uncleanness could not touch him. He could not be made unclean. He didn't need to listen to, the, to that aspect of the law. He could touch a leper who didn't have the power to make him unclean. You see, the purpose of the law was something that, that was, as, as the people needed it, as a reminder of the seriousness of sin, Jesus, as the Son of God, can afford to touch a leper when others can't. But this, this act is a profound act. You, you see this throughout Jesus' ministry. He's constantly running up against the Pharisees who are looking at his life and finding in Jesus things they would never do. You can't do that on the Sabbath. 
Oh, yes, I can. I'm Lord of the Sabbath. You can't touch a leper. Oh, yes, I can. Oh, yes, I can. You see, the fact of the matter is that Jesus was without sin. Not only by the fact that he never committed a sin, but in his essential nature, he had no inclination to sin. He was not, he was not of a sinful nature like you and I are. It was a different matter for him. But, the no, but, but, but notice this. It, it, means, it means, in a sense, more than that. Jesus was not in danger of becoming ceremonially unclean, unclean, unfit to approach His Father. Not at all. He could touch the leper and be just fine. But when He does this, man, I mean, things start to change. It is a signal that, that there is something dramatic that is going to take place. That what the law was trying to do, point out human sinfulness, keep sinfulness within certain boundaries. There was something about what Jesus was going to do that was going to be transformative. It was going to do something that the law could never do. Because you see, what the New Testament teaches us is that while the law can tell us what sin is, it has no power to make us do what's right. Furthermore, while the law is really good at pointing out our guilt, it can't do anything to cleanse our consciences. No ability to do that at all. Jesus came to do things that the law could not do. And when he does, he establishes a new covenant. It's a new covenant. It's a completely new thing. So what are we told in the New Testament? Let me just close with this. What does it mean for us? When Jesus touches this leper, it is literally the signaling of a new era that is being ushered in. It's a new day walking into, uh, coming upon planet Earth. Something brand new is happening. What does it mean? Well, first of all, it means we are under grace, not under law. It means that what we're told in Romans 6.14, we are not under the law. We are not under the law. Now, this, this meant some really extraordinary things. And throughout the New Testament, you see this being wrestled out. Paul has to deal with issues like, what about circumcision? It was prescribed. It was mandated. It was necessary to be a covenant person. And Paul comes along and says, nope. Nope. It's of no consequence. Circumcision is an issue of the heart, he says. Cutting away the flesh of the inner man. That thing is not significant in and of itself any longer. We are not under that law. It's fascinating. The book of Hebrews is so powerful in this. But one of the things that Hebrews points out is this, that Jesus has become our high priest. Oh yeah, and don't miss the fact that he had nothing to do with the tribe of Levi. He didn't come from that tribe. He's a priest in the order of Melchizedek. 
something that precedes Aaron and the Levitical priesthood. He's a priest of a greater significance, of a greater consequence. He's a different kind. He's unique to himself. Had he been, had he been considered as a priest under Leviticus, he would never have qualified. But he was sent by God in a different order entirely. Different order entirely. It's a remarkable thing that we're told in the New Testament. Hebrews proclaims that we are under a better covenant with better promises, mediated by a priest from a completely different line, a different source. And so it starts telling us things like circumcision. They just don't matter anymore. It's a, it's a, different, it's a different day. It's a new order. You're not under that law. The second thing it tells us is uh, Romans 14, 14. Here's what you are under. And my brothers and sisters, do not take this lightly. Romans 14, 14 proclaims that part of what this means for us is that we are, as people under grace, we are people who are free under our consciences. Now, this is a, I can't take too much time, but this is a huge deal. Listen, if, uh, if your approach to sin is, eh, no big deal, my conscience doesn't bother me, that's a heart problem. That's a heart problem. The New Testament does not come along and make light of sin. But what it does show us is this. Boy, there's a lot of things in this world that are not easy to figure out. And there's differences among believers. And you've got to walk out your conscience. So in Sunday school this morning, we talked about marriage, divorce, remarriage. My brothers and sisters, listen, you should have been there. It was an hour or 45 minutes, 50 minutes. It was long, okay? I'm not going to repeat it. But the point is simply this. There are some really challenging issues and to answer for what is in our hearts before God is a complicated matter. Because, man, we human beings are so good at excusing ourselves and rationalizing and avoiding issues. To live with a clear conscience before God is a serious spiritual exercise. To not be under law calls you to live in that daily living relationship with God that says, am I living to your glory in all things I do? Whether I eat, whether I drink, is it to the glory of God? It's significant. Living under conscience is a serious demand. It's a serious demand. The last thing we see in this is this, that cleanness or uncleanness, by the way, is a hard issue. It's a hard issue. This is, this is one of the things that Jesus had to have out with the Pharisees. It's not what you're eating. It's not the foods. It's not what goes into a man that defiles him. It's what comes out of his heart. Why? Because out of the heart proceed adultery, fornication. Out of the heart proceed. Uh, out, of, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The words that you say, the things that you do, they all come springing up out of here. And man, I don't like to admit that. I don't like to admit that, that when a word comes out of my mouth, it says something about what was in my heart. That when I do something I shouldn't do, it says something about the condition of my heart. 
And God is seriously concerned about that. My brothers and sisters, what Jesus did when he's touched his le- that leper was nothing short of cataclysmic. It was the signal. Everything's about to change. And if you take it down to one of its most basic levels, it was simply because of this. When I die and rise from the dead, I'm going to send my Holy Spirit. He's going to come and he's going to indwell these people. And he's going to lead them into all truth. And he's going to remind them of the things that I have taught them. And I'm going to tell them to live in the Spirit and to walk in the Spirit. To stay connected to me, to abide in me and let my word abide in them. And it's going to become vital heart religion. It's going to be a powerful transformation because I'm going to change them from the inside out. It was a huge deal what Jesus did when he touched that leper. It signaled the start of something brand new, something profound. My brothers and sisters, that's a little piece of what it means to live under the lordship of Christ. We live under his rulership over our lives. Over the one who says, here's the good news, I can touch a leper and make him clean. I can fix you. I can heal you. We didn't say it in so many words, but one thing that is true about the Lordship of Christ is that His Lordship expresses the expectation of obedience from His subjects. We're going to answer to Him. We answer to Him. His Lordship over us. The call this morning is that we would be a people who live under the Lordship of Christ. That we would be obedient to the one who is over us. That we would follow him. That he would not be a figurehead of the church, but would be truly the Lord of the church. He would be the one to whom we yield our obedience and our devotion. I want to close this morning with just a quick moment of reflection Just a quick um, moment of thought, maybe of quiet prayer for each of us. Where is the challenge of Christ's Lordship strongest in your life? Where does it come up against you hardest? Boy, Lord, that's difficult to submit to. That's difficult to surrender to. challenge. I I should say this since I mentioned the subject. When you live under hard and fast rules, it's really easy to come up with regulations for everybody to live under when it comes to marriage, divorce, remarriage. Freedom of conscience is a different thing. It's a different place to live. Yes, we recognize the importance of marriage. All of us have to walk this out before God. You know, the way, the way we treat well, let me just say it this way. It's too easy to convey the message that if certain things have happened in your life that haven't happened to me, you're more broken than I am. God deliver us from those attitudes. 
God deliver us from those attitudes. The grace of God is incredible. It's restorative. And then it requires that we walk out seriously under his lordship what it means to be obedient to him. Let's ask God for the grace to, to walk before him honestly with a clear conscience before him. Would you just bow with me and let's close in a word of prayer this morning? Lord, a word of grace is really a, a profound word because it is so freeing. It transforms lives. It, 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 it heals consciences. It takes guilt, delivers us from guilt, washes away the accusation of a guilty conscience. It is truly a, a message of forgiveness and of, and of new beginning. And grace is also the supreme reason to walk out a life of obedience to our God because of the generous nature of His forgiveness and the incredible cost of the life of Christ. So Lord, uh, a true understanding of grace can never become licentious because we know the price that was paid. And yet, a true understanding of grace will bring such incredible freedom and newness of life to our hearts. And Lord, I just want to thank you that you signaled to your day, the people in your day, and to us the tremendous work you were going to do by putting your hand on a leper. Lord, you did it literally for that man, and figuratively you've done it in every single one of our lives. You put your hand upon us. In all of our sinfulness, all of our failures, all of our imperfections, you put your hand on us. You've breathed new life into us by your Spirit. You've cleansed, forgiven our consciences. And now, Lord, we come face to face with what it is to live under the loving guidance of one who gave himself for us and who tells us now if we're going to follow him, we are to deny ourselves and take up our cross and follow him. And Lord, I pray that you'd help us to do that. Deliver us from an attitude of flippancy, carelessness. Deliver us also from a spirit of bondage that comes with condemnation, shame, guilt. Help us to receive, Lord, your forgiveness and fullness. And then help us to walk out that forgiveness, showing our appreciation by our obedience. 
Lord, be with us today. Help us to live it out throughout this week in our daily lives. Direct us towards yourself. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I, I hope today you can walk out of here. Listen, there's only so much time, but I hope you can walk out with some sense of what he did for us was truly remarkable. Truly remarkable. And that you live in that joy throughout the week and also that you live in obedience because of that joy throughout this week. May the Lordship of Christ be very real to you this week in all of its comfort and in all of its responsibility. May he be present with you and go with you throughout this week. Hope to see you at small groups tonight. God bless you all.